This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, a full year of bloodshed in Ukraine. Is China now on the brink of helping Russia crush its enemy? It's been a year of death, destruction and misery for Ukrainians, but we'll hear how Western support and the fighting spirit of their countrymen are giving cause for hope. Every day brings us more and more hope that this will end soon and just, well, this is, that is why that's a kind of a mixture of emotions. That's, uh, of course, grief and anger and tiredness, but at the same time, it's, it's also hope and huge love of people. And Australia's business community pushing back on research that found soaring corporate profits are driving inflation. Well, it's been a year since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. A year since Ukrainians woke to missiles falling from the sky. Tens of thousands of people have been killed, towns and cities have been flattened and millions have fled the country. Russia's president launched his attack, aiming to seize the capital Kyiv quickly and topple the government led by Volodymyr Zelensky. Since then, the losses in Ukraine have been grave and shocking Russian war crimes have been detailed. All the while, Mr Zelensky has rallied significant international moral, financial and military support. Now the war continues into its second year. Our coverage tonight looks back and ahead. We'll hear how China may play a key role in the conflict and speak to Ukrainians who are living through such misery. First, a look back at our coverage just hours after the invasion began on the 24th of February 2020. I tell you what, I just heard a big bang. There are big explosions taking place in Kiev right now. Russia has attacked Ukraine, drawing a howl of condemnation from much of the world. Dear Ukrainian citizens, this morning President Putin announced a special military operation in Donbass. Don't panic. We are strong. We will win over anyone because we are Ukraine. Glory to Ukraine. There are reports of gunfire near the airport in Kyiv. The military says that they are repelling an air attack by an invader. If you look at the numbers, it's a complete mismatch. I mean, the Russians have about five times as many troops. Ukraine certainly has a very active citizenship who said they will take up arms. From the bottom of my heart, President Putin, stop your troops from attacking the Ukraine. The Russian military has begun a brutal assault on the people of Ukraine. Without provocation, <clears throat> without justification, without necessity, this is a premeditated attack. Whoever would try to stop us and further create threats to our country, to our people, should know that Russia's response will be immediate and lead you to such consequences that you have never faced in your history. Europe's security has taken a deep turn for the worse for a prolonged period. There's no other way to describe this. This is war. 
Some of our coverage from a year ago. On the anniversary of Russia's invasion, China is calling for a ceasefire and a gradual de-escalation of the war. While Beijing claims to be neutral, China and Russia have been in talks this week, pledging a deeper relationship ahead. Some observers are warning that despite China's proposed pathway to end the conflict, the strengthening of ties with Moscow could signal an escalation of the war. A reporter, Bridget Fitzgerald, has the details. Sam, China's foreign ministry has issued a statement on what it calls the political settlement of the Ukraine crisis this morning. It outlines a 12-point plan for hostilities to cease, peace talks to resume and a resolution to the humanitarian crisis. But there's also other lines in there saying things like we need to abandon the Cold War mentality, calling for all countries to be taken seriously and for an end to Western sanctions. China also hasn't criticised Russia for its actions. The plan seems to paint both sides as equal aggressors and talks about both sides needing to discuss peace rather than the need for Russian retreat. Whereas Ukraine says since it was Russia that invaded Ukraine, the only pathway to peace is for Russia to withdraw. The relationship between China and Russia looks to be growing stronger too. Beijing's top diplomat Wang Yi visited Moscow this week, pledging a deeper relationship between the two countries. Vladimir Putin spoke about the new frontiers between China and Russia as well this week. That was in the same speech that he signalled that he'd double down on the conflict in Ukraine. There are reports Chinese leader Xi Jinping is preparing for a summit with Vladimir Putin in coming months. And to some observers, these are all quite troubling signs. Dr Malcolm Davis is the Senior Analyst in Defence Strategy and Capability at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. I think that there is a risk that the longer this war goes on, uh, the more fragile Western support will become. As I said, the key wildcard here is now China. Does does China step into the conflict and actually provide military support to Russia? That could change everything quite dramatically, not just in Ukraine, but globally in terms of the perception of, of what the significance of this war is. Meanwhile, the UN General Assembly has approved a non-binding resolution that calls for Russia to end hostilities in Ukraine and withdraw its forces. And to mark the anniversary of Russia's invasion, Ukraine's ambassador to Australia, Vassil Morosnichenko, addressed the National Press Club. What's he had to say? The ambassador's speech began with an address to the people of Australia in Ukrainian from the First Lady of Ukraine, Olena Zelenska. Vasil Morishnyshenko then spoke about Russia's assault on his homeland. He gave a scathing description of the invasion. The full-scale invasion is a modern, mechanised a murderous version of old-school imperialism and mafioso mentality. Tsarism meets Scarface, a horrific throwback to an era everyone thought over. The ambassador also thanked Australia for its support. The Australian government today announced it would give Ukraine's defence forces access to Australian drone systems in a package worth $33 million. The government also unveiled a raft of new sanctions against people connected to Russia's ongoing invasion. Australia has committed more than half a billion dollars in, in military assistance to Ukraine so far, and that includes armoured vehicles, artillery and ammunition. Vasil Marishnyshenko says more support is needed from the West. Ukraine is a country of 44 million people, so we still have resources and we still still have many people who are volunteers who are joining voluntarily. What we need is, of course, we need the training, we need the armor, we need the weapons, and we need the equipment so that they are able to, to, to use it to defend the country.
That's Ukraine's ambassador to Australia, Vassil Moroshnichenko. And Bridget, you've been speaking to Ukrainians. How are they describing the last 12 months? Sam, the people I spoke to are living through this war and they say that this has just completely changed the way that they're living their lives. But in a strange way, they've also become used to this strange new existence. They're also reflecting on their memories of the 24th of February 2022. Here's how Alexandra Povoroznik describes that morning. My husband shook me awake. You know, he said, like, the war has started and, you know, my first instinct was, you know, like, oh, there might be tanks at our border or something like that, you know, so we still have, you know, time, um, no need to panic. But then he said, like, no, they're actually shooting missiles at Kiev. The journalist and her family left Kiev for several weeks but made the decision to return home. I do remember, um, you know, in the early sort of days and weeks, talking to my husband about, you know, how I was thinking that, you know, maybe the war would be over by Easter. And he said, no, definitely is definitely not going to be over by Easter. And I just couldn't believe that. I was like, I, I, you know, in the first days, I remember, you know, Googling how long wars usually last. And, you know, these sort of things, you know, as a modern person, you're horribly unprepared for things like that. Very quickly, Alexandra Povoroznik went from reporting on social issues and writing about films and food to covering the war. She says Ukrainians have rallied behind the defence effort. And it's not just the soldiers. Uh, whenever whenever um, a Russian missile hits a power plant or something like that, there are you know, news of ordinary people, the workers at the plant, just rushing in there while missiles are still flying. And that's that's not something they're, you know, they're asked to do. It's their initiative. For many, the wars completely changed the course of their lives. I am a completely uh, new, uh, different person. Serge Velichansky is a second sergeant in the Ukrainian Territorial Defence Force. Before the invasion, he had a thriving career. He was a university lecturer, a journalist and a stand-up who hosted events and did improv workshops with corporate clients. Then Russia launched its offensive and he became a soldier. Every day was a battle for me because being in the entertainment business, I did not have the skills and the preparation for the challenges that we undertook. Um, Waking up at night for a shift, going under the shelling and uh, bombs, uh, saying goodbye to to friends that passed away, were killed in the battles, helping those that uh, were weak or injured. This all year, right now, it seems like, I don't know how long will it take for me to grasp everything what took place. But for Serge Vilichansky and others like him, there was no question they'd defend their country against Russia. For over 300 years, we've had the history of the Russians in Moscow expressing Ukrainian freedom and Ukrainian will for freedom. But they've never suppressed the desire to stay free. The DNA of Ukrainian people is freedom. Sergei Lysak is a pastor in Kiev. His church is heavily involved in donation drives and rebuilding houses for displaced people. He says surrender is not an option. They want to be free. They want to, to live in an environment where they can say what they feel they want to say 
when they can choose what they want to choose. So they are fighting for their land with a humble heart, not with a, a heart of a Russian soldier who is trying to figure out what is he doing in Ukrainian land. And in Kyiv, as in many other parts of Ukraine, life goes on as close to normal as possible. Oleksandra Povoroznik is working, going out for coffee and dropping her son at daycare. She and her husband are expecting a second child in May. Obviously, the fact that the invasion is lasting still is going on it's horrible and you know we all want peace but on the other hand it's sort of a testament to the fact that Ukraine is still standing. Alexandra Povoroznik speaking to Bridget Fitzgerald from Kyiv. Dr Olga Polotska is the executive director of the National Research Foundation of Ukraine and also lives in Kyiv. A short time ago I asked her how she's marking the first anniversary of the Russian invasion. Really, the worst, uh, the worst day possible in in the worst anniversary possible in in uh, the life of every Ukrainian, and I'm no exception. Of course, I woke up very early uh, today. Actually, um, uh, well, um, to candle the lights, just well to uh, light a candle uh, at 4 a.m. to um, commemorate everyone who who is gone. Uh, both on the front and civilians, um, but at the same time, uh, though that that's been really 365 days of of this tragedy, uh, every day brings us more and more hope that this will end soon. And just well, th- this is that is why that's a kind of a mixture of emotions. That's um, of course grief uh, and anger and tiredness but at the same time it's it's also hope and huge love of people what's giving you the hope that it might end soon uh so well many things first of all the first thing that we have been standing for one year though the whole world expected us to fall within 72 hours and uh, which means that we are resilient and which means that we did a thing the russian federation didn't expect so that was a kind of a surprise, right? Uh, and of course, the massive help and support coming from all over the world. Uh, it's not only about just, well, the financial help and weapons, which is a priority, definitely, has always been and still remains. But it's also, well, the attitude. Yeah, when President Biden came to Kiev, that was a kind of a huge surprise to everybody. Uh, well, to 99% of, of the population of, of people living in Kiev. And that was really, everybody was, I, I, I would say that everybody was kind of smiling. Are you concerned, though, that as the war drags on, there'll be less support from your allies? Well, there is such a concern. I would say there used to be such a concern. But it seems to me the situation is just the opposite. That develops in such a way that more and more countries, more and more politicians, more and more people are involved and engaged. And they uh, express their support and understanding. And it seems to me and it seems to me the support is going to become even stronger. Ukrainians, I know, have long been a very proud people, but have you surprised yourselves over the last year how much you could withstand and and the fight you've put up? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, well, you know, I personally changed the kind of um, vision upon um, Ukrainian mentality, I would say, because... um, I used to think, and that, 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 that there is nothing bad about that, that Ukrainians are a very strong nation. 
uh, with a kind of individualistic bent that we are quite individualistic about just, well, uh, protecting our interests, uh, choosing our way, whatever. Maybe we are, but at the same time, well, at the, at, just well, at the time of trouble, huge trouble, the, the war, uh, people got so much united and really nobody was managing this process that came automatically. I am so proud of being a Ukrainian. You, you can hardly imagine. I, I am so proud that I was born here and that every day I, I communicate and I see just well the people and I work with the people who are like that. Yeah, that, that's really incredible, really incredible. What is also incredible is that we do not kind of lose hope. Dr. Polotska, many, many Australians are thinking of Ukrainians today and we thank you very much for speaking to us from Kyiv. Thank you for having me and best regards to, to your team and to Australians. Thank you. Dr. Olga Polotska, she's the executive director of the National Research Foundation of Ukraine. She spoke to me a short time ago from Kyiv. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, how rubbish is piling up in remote parts of Australia. We look at ideas on how to clear the dumps. To Western Australia now and the 2021 case of a young girl who died after waiting nearly two hours for medical treatment prompted close scrutiny of practices at the Perth Children's Hospital. Today, the state's deputy coroner found Ashwarya Ashworth may have survived if she'd been treated sooner for sepsis. The long-awaited report includes several recommendations to prevent similar tragedies and medical experts and unions are demanding urgent action. Isabel Masali reports. In the two years since her death, Ashwarya Ashworth's parents have been determined to get answers and action. We lost our child and this shouldn't happen to anybody else. That's the main thing we want. It is very important to find out if we have dealt with similar situations in the past because if somebody had done... If somebody had done this one in the past, I would have had my daughter with me right now. And today there's hope a coroner's report may lead to change. In April 2021, the seven-year-old had a high fever and was carried into the Perth Children's Hospital. Her parents repeatedly tried to raise the alarm, but she wasn't seen for nearly two hours and died of sepsis. WA's Deputy Coroner Sarah Linton has now found there was a small possibility Ashwarya may have lived if she'd received medical treatment sooner. And while technically staffing numbers were met, there were insufficient staff on that night. Her report says... It shouldn't take the death of a beloved little girl for the Department of Health and the government to stop and consider what more it can do and how much more money it should spend to keep children safe when they visit our specialist children's hospital. And went on to say that means spending the money that's needed to provide a positive practice environment. There is no point in having a state-of-the-art facility if the staff working within it are stretched beyond capacity and parents lose their trust and faith in them. For parents Ashwa and Prasita, the findings give mixed emotions. In a statement, they said it's been incredibly upsetting to read what they've always known, that the health system tragically failed Ashwarya. But they stress their mission has always been to ensure her death was not in vain and improvements are made to ensure no other family has to endure what they have. 
The deputy coroner has identified missed opportunities from that night and made five recommendations. WA Health Minister Amber Jade Sanderson. Four of the five recommendations are already underway uh, throughout the health system and we will give very careful consideration to the fifth recommendation. I genuinely hope that this third review will provide some comfort and closure. One of those recommendations is to implement nurse-to-patient ratios in WA's public hospitals. It's something the state government has already committed to phasing in over a two-year period after a fierce campaign from the nurses' union. But the deputy coroner wants the one-to-four nurse-to-patient ratio to be implemented as a priority. We are fast-tracking ratios. We will prioritise Perth Children's Hospital in the rollout of those ratios. Professor Philip Della agrees this should be urgently implemented. He's WA's former chief nurse and presented evidence on this issue during the inquest. The nurse-to-patient ratios has had over 40 years of evidence that shows where you have the correct number of registered nurses, and the word here is registered nurses, to patients the quality and safety, and the big issue here is about the safety of care delivery, improves. Professor Philip Della says the changes will make a big improvement to patient safety and hopefully prevent something like this from happening again. Isabel Masali reporting. New research from the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute, suggests the country's inflation issues are being caused by corporate profits, not rising wages. The findings have unions calling for businesses to stop raising prices in order to protect the health of the broader economy. So what's the chance that'll happen? Oliver Gordon has been taking a look. It's large corporate profits causing Australia's inflation issues, not wages. Australia Institute researchers like Greg Jericho came to that conclusion by analysing ABS national accounts data from the December quarter of 2019 up to the most recent September quarter of 2022. Well, what we do is we look at the overall economy and we know that the economy is either going to, to profits or to wages and then there's the section that goes towards government. And when we look at the growth in profits over that time, which includes both the downturn and also the period after where we've seen this strong increase in inflation, we can determine that essentially what we'd expect profits to grow at if they were growing in line with inflationary expectations. And we can from there determine, in a sense, the the excess. And we see that there has been an excess in both wages and profits, but the excess in wages only accounts for around 18% of the increase in prices and whereas the increase in profits accounts for around that 69% of the, the rise in inflation. Not everyone's willing to take the Australia Institute research on face value. Dr Peter Burns is from business organisation Australian Industry Group. We don't find that research convincing uh, principally because two-thirds of the increase in profits is due to higher prices for commodity exports so that this doesn't feed into inflation. And so the analysis based on aggregate changes in profits doesn't really stack up 
when you're trying to explain domestic inflation. The Australia Institute's Greg Jericho says that argument, that much of the profits from the mining sector are going offshore and therefore not increasing domestic demand, is flawed. I always find it interesting when business groups say we should exclude the most profitable sector of our economy. It always seems to be whenever they we suggest something like a super profit tax, they say, oh no, we can't hurt our most profitable sector. And when we suggest that, well, that most profitable sector is leading to increased inflation, they say, oh, well, don't worry, it's not really doing anything because all the profits are going overseas. I mean, you either count the most important sector in the economy or you are dealing with an economy that is not really Australia. So are businesses gouging the country into an inflationary state? Angela Jackson from Impact Economics says the answer to that is complicated. Whether or not uh, it's price gouging, uh, there certainly seems to be instances of that uh, where there are companies that appear to be making, I guess, hay with the fact that there is this surge in demand and supply is somewhat constrained to lift prices above that which they need to cover their costs and a reasonable profit share, particularly in markets that are somewhat protected and lack competition, such as the aviation industry. Uh, But whether this is just businesses behaving badly, I think that's probably a stretch too far. So what responsibility, if any, do large corporates have with regards to the health of the economy? And should they start tempering price hikes to help rein in inflation? Shareholder activist and commentator Stephen Main thinks now's the time for that conversation. We need companies with enormous market power to be a bit more responsible in balancing the interests of consumers versus shareholders and not always going for the price rise uh, to maximise their profits, particularly where you've got concentrated market power, such as banking, such as supermarkets, such as, you know, a, a Telstra uh, in, the, in the telecommunications spaces or the, you know, the small number of genuinely large integrated energy companies like uh, Origin and AGL. They should be doing their utmost to ease the cost of living pressures on households. But he's not holding his breath. Not too many businesses are going to be super charitable more than they need to just to try and help out their consumers. They'll charge what they can get away with and that's where you've got to rest on uh, the regulators public pressure and competition to hopefully uh, mitigate some of the price rises at a time of high inflation. Shareholder activist Stephen Main, Oliver Gordon with that report. Local councils responsible for managing landfill waste dumps in very remote parts of Australia are facing big challenges as they try to make their operations more sustainable. But as Jane Barden reports, researchers from Charles Darwin University are proposing some solutions and priorities to ensure more waste is reused. In his remote community of Manangrida in western Arnhem Land, leader Eddie Mason is worried by rubbish he sees everywhere. My people have to be educated not to chuck all the rubbish down there on the beach. What we need here is someone out here to teach them about recycling. He also wishes more of the rubbish collected by the local council going to the landfill tip was being recycled. There's a lot of building material out there. We can pick it up and recycle, but it'll cost too much money. The NT has a container deposit scheme 
scheme paying 10 cents a can. But even though this rubbish and other valuable recyclables like scrap steel are now in demand, remote councils struggle with the costs and means to get them to markets. Charles Darwin University researcher Deepika Mathur has published a report recommending some solutions. One is that more local councils should find markets for their cardboard, drink containers and construction waste and get into partnerships with barge and trucking companies delivering goods to take them away. She's recommending manufacturers and the biggest remote waste producers should help pay. What comes out of households is very little compared to what comes out from construction, what comes out of, let's say, stores, cars, metal. So how can we work with all the people across the supply chain and make sure that we can distribute responsibility, equal responsibility for these waste that are produced and then have to be taken off? It's not just one entity that I'm saying needs to be more responsible. The East Arnhem Council services very remote communities, including on Groot and Elko Islands. Its technical director, Shane Marshall, says a partnership under which the local C-Swift barge company helps to subsidise the cost of transport after dropping off goods to communities has helped them send all kinds of things for recycling. Uh, Everything from processed scrap metal, container deposit scheme, um, cans, bottles, and I think we're pushing close to 3 million containers at the moment. Batteries, tyres we send back, um, paints and oils, e-waste. Are there things that can be reused in the community or repurposed in the community? Well, vehicles is one. Before they're processed, obviously anything of value and and community members, they'll get certain parts off cars and those sort of things. The remote Tiwi Islands Regional Council's Chief Executive Alan McGill says many things the local communities would like to do are still beyond their financial reach. A lot of it's to do with protecting the environment and leakage from the site, separating particular types of waste. Recycling is problematic because it's very costly to get things back to Darwin where we can sell it. In the middle of the wet season, he says just basic waste management is a major challenge. We don't have a waste management facility other than just an area where waste gets done. And at the moment, we can't get to it because the road to it is impassable. So besides the actual waste facility and its requirements, access to that site is a problem. Tiwi Islands Regional Council Chief Executive Alan McGill. He was talking there to Jane Barden. And that's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Cody. Technical production by Scott Johnston and Kem White. I'm Samantha Donovan. I'll be back with PM on Monday evening. And do join David Lipson on radio tomorrow morning for this week with interviews about the future of superannuation, one year of the war in Ukraine and the controversial changes to Roald Dahl's children's book. The podcast of this week is also available on the ABC Listen app. Hope you have a great weekend. Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. To some, Charlie Teo is a god of brain surgery, a doctor willing to push the boundaries to save lives. To others... He's a risk taker who goes too far. Today, we look at the Medical Disciplinary Commission looking into the deaths of two of Dr. Teo's patients. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.